Psalm 139, verses 1 to 6. David reflects on his amazing God. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Well, we do stand in awe of the one who knows, um, who knows us, who can know the mind of our creator. That's the theme we're going to sing about now before Mark comes to preach to us from uh, the psalm we've just had read to us. Let's stand to sing, Who Can Know the Mind of Our Creator. Let's just uh, remain standing. Um, We've just been singing of standing in awe of God. Just take a moment of quiet in the business of our lives before we come to his word. We sang earlier of not wanting to put God in a box or shove him in a corner. But instead, why don't you for a minute just put in a box, as it were, shove it into a corner, all the things that are distracting you or worrying you, maybe the burdens that you came to church with this morning. Just stand in awe before God and give him those worries that we might come to his word without distraction. Father God, to stand in awe of you is to stand recognizing who you are, understanding who we are and to give you the glory that's on a, that is due to your name father i pray that in this next moment you would help us indeed to put into a box and shove in the corner all the things that would distract us from standing in awe of you all the things that would distract us from listening to your voice and hearing from you from the passage we had read earlier And I pray instead that your spirit would fill our hearts and our minds, that we would understand these incredible truths we're going to look at shortly, but far more than understanding them, that they would be truths that shape our lives and make a difference on Monday morning. So please help us as we look at this wonderful psalm together. Amen. Great. Please take a seat and welcome. It's great to see you here. Particularly warm welcome if you're visiting. Uh, Really good to have you with us. Just to say, um, we're beginning, last week we sort of began a, a series in the mornings looking really at the character of God, the nature of God. And I suggested if you wanted to read something to help with this series, then this book that's been around for ages is a great one. Um, I managed to get hold of some of these ridiculously cheap last week and they all sold really quickly. Um, I got another box of ridiculously cheap ones. Uh, after they go, then um, you'll be able to get them as per normal from um, Charles and Caroline who run the bookstore and doing a great job with that. So... Um, uh, those who've asked for one, come and see me afterwards, and there's a few extras, but um, I really recommend this book to help you with this little series we're doing. Well, as you can see on uh, on the screen behind me, uh, the thing we're going to be thinking about today, and it's going to build into next week, uh, we're going to look at Psalm 139. I think it's one of my favorite psalms in the Bible. It's a glorious psalm, and we're just going to look at the first six verses this morning. 
Uh, Jill read to us earlier, I'd really encourage you to keep the Bible open. This is a particular um, sermon where having the Bible in front of you and seeing the words that are written will really help because we're just going to work through it line by line because I think that would be a particularly helpful way of addressing this passage. Um, But we're thinking of what it means that God is omniscient. It's a funny word, isn't it? You might have heard it before. It's a word that speaks of God being all-knowing. It comes from two Latin words, omni meaning all, and scientia meaning knowledge, from which you get our word science. So when we speak of God being omniscient, we're speaking of a God who knows absolutely everything. Remember last week um, I said that when you think about the attributes of God, the things that describe the nature of God, they're not just... Um, things that stand stationary. All of the attributes of God are relational attributes. So I'll give you a particular example. Uh, maybe the greatest attribute, God is love. The Bible says that in the book called 1 John. God is love. That doesn't just mean that God in himself is love. It doesn't just mean that God has the capacity to love. It doesn't mean that God is loving, although it means all those things. More than that, it means God loves me. So it's a great truth that is relational. And we're going to look at all sorts of things like that um, through this psalm. And as we look at God's omniscience, it's not just a, a truth, well, God knows everything, isn't that nice? It's a relational truth. What difference will the fact that he knows everything make to my life? And I hope and pray that as we see something of what it means that God knows everything, it will make a massive difference to our life, particularly tomorrow morning. Now, here's a question for you just to ponder. Um, is there anything that God cannot do? We just sang a song that uh, will give you the answer. Um, but have a think. Is there anything God can't do? Uh, to put you out of your pain, there's lots of things that God cannot do. I've just said that from a pulpit. There are lots of things God cannot do. There are limitations that God places upon himself. Things that God cannot be because of who he is. I'll give you some examples. God cannot lie. Why? Because God is truth. And God cannot be inconsistent with his character, so he cannot lie. Uh, God is love, which means God cannot not be loving. It's impossible for him. Uh, God never, ever makes a mistake or could make a mistake. Maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, he's made a lot of mistakes in my life. We'll come and have a think about that. But God can't make mistakes. Uh, One of the things I love about God, he cannot be inconsistent to his character. Uh, God cannot get tired. Why? Because he's the sustainer of everything. God cannot learn anything. If you were ever on a game show on TV, I don't know, who wants to be a millionaire and you had to phone a friend, he's the best person you could phone. He knows everything about everything. God can't learn anything. Uh, God can never have a second thought or an afterthought. A kind of, oh, I did that badly, I'll do it differently next time. Have you thought about that before? God can't have an afterthought. And what we're going to see uh, over the next few weeks as we look at the attributes of God is that everything that God is, he is perfectly. So to think of God being omniscient, he knows all things. God is never, ever ignorant, which means he lacks perfect knowledge. He can't be ignorant, ever. Everything that God is, he is perfectly. And so I think that as we come to this psalm and as we look in the few weeks' time at other passages in the Bible that teach us about the nature of God... My prayer for myself and for all of us is actually it would be a very, very humbling experience. Because as our minds try and grapple with the grandeur of who God is, I hope that it humbles all of us and that none of us walk away with prouder hearts than when we began this series. 
So come to the passage, and we are just going to work through it, because what David, the writer, does in this passage, he just layers, layer upon layer upon layer of truth about who God is and helps us to understand the relevance of God being all-knowing. So come to verse 1 of Psalm 139. David says, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. That, that phrase, search me, is a sort of phrase that speaks of um, having a thorough knowledge. It literally means to dig. It's, David is saying, Lord, you have dug me. Um, imagine you had, um, if I told you that there was a diamond in your back garden the size of my fist, an enormous diamond. What would you do? You'd go and dig it up. You would dig and dig and dig through all the mud, all the clay, all the water, all the grass, all the worms, all the bugs. You would dig and dig and dig meticulously through every single grain of sand and clay to dig and find what? The diamond, because it's precious. And David's reflecting on that and saying, that's a bit like God. He has dug you. He knows every single thing there is to know about you. You'll know the, the words in the Bible, God knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows every single cell in your body. He could write out the DNA of you and do that at exactly the same time for every human being who lives now, whoever will live, whoever has lived, and not get confused by it. Does that baffle you? It blows my mind. Totally blows my mind. But that is the God we're speaking of. And David here is is like that. He's saying, you search me. You know everything there is to know about me. And notice in this verse, it says, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. I'm not a linguist. I'm not a scholar in that way. But I have been told that that word me, you have searched me, me doesn't appear in the original. And it's a rhetorical device that the writer would use. So this is David. He's pondering on the grandeur of God. And he says this, you, Lord, have searched me and you know. And the idea is that you insert me. That's the way the writer is writing. He deliberately doesn't put that word me in to give you a chance as the reader to put it in yourself. Lord, you know me? You know everything about me? First of all, wow. Second of all, why? Why would you be bothered to know about me? And it's this amazing way that the writer David is understanding the distinction between God as creator and you and me as his creatures made by him. There's the grandeur of God as creator. He knows everything, but there's the intimacy of he knows me as opposed to you. And he knows you as opposed to me. It's an incredible verse. You could preach just on one verse, and there's loads more we could say just about that. give you some examples. The book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was called to be a prophet, a spokesperson for God as a teenager, younger than some of the teenagers sitting here. And God spoke to him right at the beginning of his life and says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Or you look at verse 16 of our psalm, where the psalmist David says, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. And there may be one of the most famous ones. The writer of Psalm 8 kind of reflects and goes, what is mankind that you're mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. There's this writer who's saying, God, in the whole expanse of all you've made, why on earth are you bothered with me? Who am I? Do you see it? It's staggering. Perhaps one of the worst chat-up lines that you might have used, I hope not, that you could use in your life if you're looking for a partner, is something like this. "Um, I feel I've known you forever. Isn't that disgustingly cheesy? I feel I've known you forever. 
But the irony is that's very true of God. He has known you forever. He knew you before he even created you. If you're in your mother's womb, the best we can do is have a scan to see something of a baby-like feature inside the womb. That's the best we've got with all our technology. God knows you before you're even in your mother's womb. Look at verse 2. Another layer to this kind of amazing cake. You know when I sit and when I rise. Just think about that. When you're sitting in the quietness of your home with the door closed, no one's around and you're just there, you and your thoughts, God knows what you're thinking when you sit. He knows when you rise up in action to do something. He sees you. God knows when you sit in shame in the quietness of your own home, absolutely gutted with a mistake you've made. And you think, no one can see me. And no one sees the pain I'm in. He sees that. And he sees when you rise up in pride too. And when I rise up in pride, he sees that. He never misses it. God sees you when you sit in pain. One of the things that's really moved me this week is there won't be a single time in your life where a tear will run down your face and God will not see it, ever. Isn't that amazing? When you sit in pain, God sees. You're never sitting lonely and and thinking, well, no one cares about me. Because God sees every tear. And he sees when we rise up in joy with the good things of life. He sees everything. And verse 2, you perceive my thoughts from afar. Not because God is distant. Remember verse 1. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. And we'll see next week, God is very close at hand. But he knows our thoughts from afar because, as we're going to see later on, he knows our thoughts before we even think them. Just let your mind sort of keep doing this and keep going wow inside as you think about who God is. I wonder if you've ever wanted to be a fly on the wall. I would love to be a fly on the wall on Friday in the Oval Office when President Trump takes over power. I've watched uh, all these sort of rubbish American films like The White House Has Fallen, Olympus Has Fallen, these sort of things. You've seen a picture of the Oval Office. I've watched The West Wing. We know what the Oval Office perhaps looks like. I'd love to know really what goes on inside the Oval Office. What goes on in there? Is it mega serious? Is it mega fun? Does he order takeaway in the office or does someone say you can't possibly ruin the carpet? Is it as we see on the films? I don't know. I'd love to be on the Oval Office wall hearing how does Trump or how is he going to order America and perhaps most of the world? What does he say? What does he say when he's in the room on his own? I've no idea. I'd love to be a fly on the wall. Perhaps you can think of a time or a place where you would love to be a fly on the wall. Maybe some of the young people, I'd love to be a fly on the wall when my parents are talking about me. What do they think? Or maybe if you're in love, you'd love to be a fly on the wall when the person that you love is talking to their best friend and telling them what they think about you. We'd love to be a fly on the wall. Here's something that's amazing. In a sense, God is a fly on the wall, far more than a fly. But he is on every wall, everywhere in the world. He knows absolutely everything. And the staggering thing is he knows everything about everything all at the same time. Have you ever been cramming for an exam? You know, if, uh, say you've got three exams on a Tuesday. I remember a time. Three exams on a Tuesday. You've got to revise for all three. Where do you start revising? Do you revise for the last exam first and then work towards the first one? Do you revise equally for all of them? You know when you're trying to cram all the different things into your head, short-term knowledge to pass your exam? And your mind's scrambled. You can't even remember one subject from another, let alone everything else. But God knows everything about everything all at the same time. And the Bible says in Matthew chapter 10, are not two sparrows sold for a penny and yet not one will fall to the ground 
without your heavenly father knowing it. Isn't that incredible? Absolutely amazing. Verse 3, you discern my going out and my lying down. We're going to see next week from verse 7, that is because God is everywhere. He never misses anything. Think of all the times in your life where you're not conscious of God. All the legitimate times, you're just getting on with your day and you're not thinking about God. Or perhaps when you go to bed at night, you fall asleep, you're not thinking about anything. That is never true of God. Uh, you know that, that, that song, uh, You Are Always on, your, on My Mind? You are always on God's mind. You are always on God's mind. All of the time. All the way through the day, all the way through the night. You're never not on his mind. He never forgets about you. Ever. He can't. And then it goes on. You are, second half of verse 3, familiar with all my ways. And indeed every way. You think of the tiniest motion of the most microscopic creature that lives in some dark trench at the bottom of the ocean through to the greatest system in our solar system god is familiar with all of those ways the intricate workings and the grandeur and everything in between uh, do you know um, the phrase the, the, the nanny state um, it was coined by a, a conservative mp in 1965 who was reflecting in frustration on the kind of fact that in our modern world kind of politicians and the powers that be kind of know Everything about us, it's really annoying, we live in this nanny state. And then in 2005, Charles Clark had this great suggestion of coming up with ID cards, do you remember that? And everyone was like, oh, you can't have ID cards, don't want the government knowing everything about me. And then there's all the conspiracy theories you can read on the internet. Um, Facebook's not owned by Zuckerberg, it's really owned by the CIA, and they're just using it to spy on everyone. All, all these sort of things. How does it make you feel when you think of the nanny states, or you think of... The CIA, you think of ID cards. It's quite unsettling, isn't it? I don't want the government to know everything about me. Is it equally as unsettling when you reflect on the fact that God knows everything? Because if it does unsettle you, then in a sense it kind of gets worse in verse 4. Before a word is even on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. Not just the words you speak, but the meaning behind them too. Um, one Christian writer was reflecting on this verse and he was walking through the woods and uh, as he walked through the woods he found a rotten tree stump and he saw bees buzzing into the tree stump and then flying out again he saw them coming in and he saw them coming out and he reflected on this verse and go it's really annoying because I can see the bees going in and come out I cannot see what's going in on inside the beehive what do the bees do in there and he said for God it's as if that beehive is made of glass he sees the bees going in and coming out, but he sees everything going on inside as well. And he just carried on walking through the woods, blown away by this one verse. And it's the verse that I think led to someone like the Apostle Paul, at the end of describing the gospel and describing the nature and character of God in Romans chapter 11. You'll know these verses. He breaks out into kind of spontaneous praise. The depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or been his counsellor? Let me try and apply this to one of the areas of life perhaps that you grapple with this the most. I suspect this will be one. Think about prayer. A lot of people will say, and it's a very legitimate question to ask, I've asked it many times, what is the point in praying if God knows everything anyway? 
He knows what's on my tongue before I even speak it. So why waste time praying? He's going to do it anyway. Just turn that question on its head. If God was not all-knowing, what would be the point in praying? Why pray to a God who doesn't know everything? Because you might pray about something God doesn't know the answer to. (laughs) That'd be pretty pointless. The thing that really blows me away is that God knows what I'm going to pray before I pray it, but he still longs for me to pray. When I was growing up, um, I was very active. We had a house in the school where my parents were teachers, and you kind of there was a garden all around the house, and it had sort of different tiers. I spent my childhood falling over. Um, I would fall down ditches, I'd fall over walls, I'd climb up trees and fall out of them. I'd climb up higher trees and fix zip lines with my best friend Christopher Bradbury, and we wouldn't fix them very well, and we'd fall out of the high tree. I would just fall over all the time and I'd go into the house as a little boy like many of you would have done as a little boy and you'll have a graze all over your knee and you'd be in floods of tears and I'd run up to a dad because that's what you do and he embraces you with a great big hug and what dad had on the mantelpiece was a little green marble jar had a cork lid and inside it were loads of little round chocolates covered in coloured foil he called them bumpy sweets and I loved bumpy sweets probably why I kept on falling out of trees because I knew I'd get one But here's the thing, when I came into a house screaming and crying with a cut on my knee, Dad didn't give me a bumpy sweet. He waited for me to run to him, and he embraced me. And through the tears, I would whimpering say, Daddy, can I have a bumpy sweet? And he'd give me one. And then suddenly, all my worries were gone, and my knee was miraculously healed, and my tears went away, and I went round, played outside, and fell over again. But that's what the bumpy sweet did. He could have given me the bumpy sweet long before I ever asked for it. But as a father, what does he want? He wants his little boy to come and ask for it. What's the point in praying if God knows what you're going to ask for? Because he's a loving father who wants you to ask him. And he'll give you everything that is good for you. Come to verse 5. You hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. An incredible verse that speaks of God going behind you, going ahead of you, and having his hand upon you. Here's a question for you, and this is something we're going to think about as we sort of try to pull some of this together. As you look at that verse 5 on the screen, does that comfort you, or does it threaten you? If it comforts you, it's because you're able to trust in God's purposes and trust in God's timing, even though so often his purposes and his timing are different to ours. It'll be a comfort to you if you're able to accept that he knows everything and you don't, and it's okay that you don't. It will be comforting if... You recognize that you don't need yourself to be all-knowing, to still be able to know God in a very real way. All sorts of ways that this verse could comfort you. But equally, how could this verse threaten you? It could threaten you with a sort of, you get your fists like this in defiance, and you say of God, well, I don't want you to be behind and before me. I don't want you to lay your hand upon me. In fact, I don't want you to come anywhere near me. And we shake our fists in defiance. But equally, it could threaten us if this verse, in a funny way, would challenge us. If you read that verse and go, my goodness, if that was really true, it would change my life. See, it can be a threat in different ways. We'll come to verse 1. 
You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. Is that a comfort to you? Uh, The song we sang earlier, indescribable, uncontainable. You know the depths of my heart and you love me the same. If you recognize that God knows the depths of your heart, the very, very deepest recesses of your heart, which you hope is hidden from somebody because you want to hide it from yourself, and you recognize that God knows that, but then you reflect on the fact that despite the fact that God knows my heart, he still loves me. Isn't that the most incredible comfort in the world? The sovereign creator knows my heart and he still loves me. Why would he want to do that? You think of verses like Romans chapter 5 verse 8. It was while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. He didn't die for us because we deserved it. He didn't die for us because our hearts were right. He died for us because our hearts were wrong. Because we don't love him with all of our heart. But he loves us with all of his heart. Or another great verse, Ezekiel 36 verse 26. God says to a wayward people, I will give you a new heart and I will put my spirit in you. Think about that. God wants to put his spirit in my heart. Why? It's only possible because he's going to give me a new heart. This verse will be a great comfort to you if you can believe that God can see into your heart, see everything in your heart. But that no longer has to threaten you because of what Christ did in your place. That is an amazing comfort. But equally, it could be a threat to you, couldn't it? Again, it could be the fist out in defiance, that kind of a threat. I don't want you to search me, Lord. I don't want you to know me. But if that's you and you are metaphorically shaking your fist at God, one of the things you probably have to wrestle with then is the fact that God doesn't cease to be what he is just because you don't like who he is. If I don't like the fact that God is all-knowing, it doesn't stop him being all-knowing. And next week we're going to see that you and I cannot run from God. There's nowhere to go. We can't run from him. But equally, if it's not this defiant kind of threat, it could be the challenge. My goodness, if God really has searched me and knows me, that changes the way that I think about him. And here's the truth, friends. God has searched each of your hearts. He searched my heart He knows your heart. He knows my heart. But the really, really important question is, will you let him into your heart? He's ripped open your heart, as it were, sees everything. But the God of the universe wants to heal it. And if you let him heal your heart, this verse is an incredible comfort to you. But if you don't let him heal your heart, then it's the greatest threat in the world. But I think for David, he was comforted with these words which is why he ends verse 6 such knowledge is too wonderful for me he's kind of overwhelmed with this understanding very limited understanding of who god is it's too lofty for me to retain he's kind of saying in my finitude as a creature i cannot even begin to comprehend what this means that god knows everything but i can still go wow there was a, a guy in the 4th century Uh, called Augustine. He lived in North Africa in a place called Hippo. And he famously said, what I'm going to stick on the screen. 
We are talking about God. What wonder is it that you do not understand? If you can understand it, it is not God. It was his way of reflecting, saying you can truly know God. And he had a deep, real relationship with the living God. But he says, if you try and put God in a box and shove him in a corner, as the song we sang goes, you don't really know God because he doesn't fit in a box and he won't go in a corner. He's the Lord of everything. I think sometimes we kind of want a Christianity without mystery. Sometimes in the Christian faith, uh, there are truths that you hold in tension. And when there are two truths that we can't fully reconcile ourselves, we just go, contradiction. Bible's not accurate, not trustworthy. God's not trustworthy. But God is saying, no, let certain truths be in tension. Wrestle with me. Wrestle with difficulties in your life. But don't say contradiction. Just say mystery. God knows. And it's okay if we don't. So as we come in a moment to celebrate the Lord's Supper, I think it's very timely that we can do that because if you think of those words in that song, you know the depths of my heart and you love me the same. As we take the Lord's Supper together to remind us of what Christ has done for us, we are responding, saying, God, you've exposed my heart, but you've also healed it. And that is a most glorious truth. Uh, And just to close... There are so many questions in my life where I ask why, and I don't know the answer. But I do know the God who does know the answers, and I know many of you do too. So the real big question that we need to leave here this morning asking is this, will I trust him? And will this truth of him knowing everything about everything comfort me rather than threaten me? Because this is a truth that should be life-changing if we begin to grasp some of its depth. Amen.